electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Larry Fink, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock. Amid market, health, and political uncertainty, Fink says money's still moving. We are seeing a record amount of retail participation in the marketplace. Across the board, the average investor is putting more and more money to work. The Wall Street icon considers equitable rescue for the American economy. Monetary policy, which I've always talked about, creates more income inequality because monetary policy lifts financial assets and it is really mostly the wealthy people who own all the financial assets. And that's why fiscal stimulus is so important. And Larry Fink on the brave new world of SPACs. I think SPACs could replace many private equity platforms. That interview plus Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine study is on pause. Health policy advisor for the Obama White House, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. This is actually standard process for every research study. You get a serious adverse event, you investigate it. It's Tuesday, October 13th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Johnson & Johnson has temporarily paused its COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials due to an unexplained illness in a study participant. Uh, The development, first reported by Stat News, notes that the study is not under a clinical hold. That's uh, the more serious hold. And it's not immediately apparent whether the volunteer received the actual treatment or a placebo. Seems like that would be a key difference. J&J says adverse events events like illnesses are an expected part of clinical studies. But if they do find out, yeah, it was the placebo, well, then, uh, you know, it it just goes without saying. Well, I don't understand. Apparently, it's not always immediately available for that. But I read through that a lot because it it seems to me like you'd be able to figure out pretty quickly if it was shutting down your entire thing. If this was somebody who got the placebo or somebody who got the But you wouldn't want your researchers. That's why it's called a blind, uh, double blind study or whatever. You wouldn't want people knowing who had it and who didn't, I guess. Somebody knows. I hope so. Or else you get done and you go, geez. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Maybe it's unblinded. The thing that I found striking about this is, this is now the second one of these that we've had. AstraZeneca, as you know, put a hold uh, briefly internationally on, on their efforts. But by the way, that effort, I believe, is not ongoing right now in the United States. So if, for example, there was a hold on the AstraZeneca project in the United States and a separate hold now on the Johnson & Johnson one. By the well, way, no, remember no, that AstraZeneca hold. hold. This is not a hold. This is not a hold on Johnson not, & not Johnson. A hold, this is but a step a, below a, that. It's a, a, it's a pause, right? A pause, but there was a pause. I, I, the point I was trying to make was there was a pause. If you want to use the word pause and hold, I know they're, they're now, there's a distinction between the two. But there was also a pause on the AstraZeneca program in the United States. If there also is a pause on the Johnson & Johnson program in the United States, then you're, then you're now down to Pfizer and Moderna as the most promising or the only other two that are even ongoing. So when you think about the timeline for when these things become available, it could become more challenged. All right. I, I would that, I would 
That's, wait until we see. If you want to find yeah. the, you know, find, that's not like you to find the negative part of it. But I, I mean, I, I think the other one came back. I, 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 it, it's not. A I hadn't realized. I don't know if you had, one. It's, I don't it's, know if you realized. Not, I had not realized that that's not a spinal program. thing. Not a spinal thing like the other one. There's I thousands I, and thousands of I, people in, in all these trials, and you're talking about two cases that you don't even know are going to result in hold. So it may push it out what, past what have, the dates. May be bad, possibly. What, Possible. Would have you imagined that? Would have you imagined that the AstraZeneca program would be running everywhere else in the United, in the world except the United States right now? I I haven't thought about uh, it. Did you I, even I realize that? Tried to imagine. Haven't tried to imagine. It means, it, I, I think what it means I, I is it means it's going to be harder cases. for the AstraZeneca program okay. to become Possible. available here in the, in the United States in, in any kind of similar timeline. Right. That's the point. Yeah. Okay. For more on the news from Johnson & Johnson, let's bring in Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He, of course, is the former White House health policy advisor under President Obama. He's now vice provost of global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's currently an informal advisor to the Joe Biden campaign and the COVID-19 and vaccine recommendations. By the way, he just co-authored a research letter for the Journal of the American Medical Association comparing U.S. COVID fatalities to those of some larger OECD countries. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but Dr. Emanuel, well, let's start with this news from J&J. Does this concern you? Well, anytime there's a serious adverse event, it has to concern you. But I think as J&J uh, CFO explained, you know, you have to let the process evolve. You have to actually examine carefully what the uh, situation is, what the adverse event is. Was it related to the vaccine or placebo or was it related to something else, a pre-existing condition? And so those are exactly the kind of questions that uh, uh, researchers will look at and try to uncover in the next uh, few hours. Um, and then we'll find out more. Um, if it's in the you know, arm with, of the vaccine, it does raise serious questions because you only have a few thousand people in a study like this. One adverse event is serious, especially when you're considering a vaccine that you're going to roll out to tens, hundreds of millions of people, maybe even billions of people. Um, so, you know, that's the, that's the ultimate concern. Um, and this is actually standard process for every research study. You get a serious adverse event, you investigate it. Yeah, it, it happens all the time. It's just that the world's not always watching so closely to see what the developments Correct. are. Correct, exactly. Probably worth pointing out that the, that the CFO of Johnson & Johnson also pointed out they don't know any of these answers because they have turned it all over to independent investigators. And that is what kind of beefs up the credibility issues around this. The CFO himself has no idea, even though this was 36 hours ago, whether this was in a placebo patient or someone who actually received the vaccine. We'll continue yeah, to watch. I would also um, say that, that they've been carefully collaborating with the NIH on this trial. And, you know, yeah. that I also think should give the American public some reassurance that this is going to be done thoroughly uh, and to the highest scientific standards. Right. Dr. Emanuel, let's talk about that paper that you wrote. You, you found that the United States did have higher death rates from COVID. I, I think the big question is, was that something that was taking place very early on in the pandemic um, and that has improved since then? And, 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 and what have you found? Tell us a little bit about your study. So what we did is to take the United States uh, mortality from COVID, uh, compare it to 18 uh, countries, uh, high-income countries like Japan and Australia, Canada and Germany, uh, and also the countries that were hit very hard at the start, Italy, Spain, France, uh, and other European countries. Um, and we looked at the whole period and compared to most countries, uh, we actually, the United States has done poorly, even if you include the early phase. But if you exclude the early phase, March and April, when every 
many countries were overwhelmed, especially places like Italy and Spain. Um, and you exclude them and then look at, say, May, after countries had experience, got their arms around how to manage this uh, virus. Um, it turns out the United States did extraordinarily bad, even compared to places like Italy. Uh, we had, uh, from May 10th uh, to today, uh, roughly 90,000 more deaths than we should have had we followed Italy's course. 90,000 Americans who died needlessly. Um, as I have pointed out before, Italy didn't have anything special uh, or different in terms of treatment, vaccines, diagnostics compared to the United States. What they had is better public health uh, implementation of the public health measures, and that actually is uh, could, could have saved tens of thousands of lives in the United States. Uh, and we can see that when we compare our experience to those of other countries. What are you talking about in terms of uh, reactions? Do you mean people wearing masks? Do you mean contact tracing? Do you mean testing that's put out? I mean, how much of this do you think falls on the healthcare system as a fault and how much of it rely, falls on, uh, on public policy reaction to it and how much falls on just citizens following the rules? Well, <laughs> Uh, it's all of it, but it's mainly the uh, public health response and public policy. Uh, it really is implementing those public health measures uh, countrywide with fidelity um, and then slowly reopening. Um, so you do have to have social distancing. You do have to have uh, trying not to go indoors. You do have to have having crowds less than 20. You do have to have wearing face masks, doing hand hygiene, and focusing your testing and contact tracing capacity. First of all, building it up, which we never did successfully in this country, and then focusing it on hotspots because we know this virus breaks out in uh, super spreading events. It's not the usual person to person to person. You know, 80 to 90 percent of people will not pass this virus on to anyone. 10 percent to 20 percent of people cause 80 percent of the infection. So you have to be able to identify them and quickly suppress that. We never built up that capacity. The federal government uh, under President Trump punted it to the states and then states did very different things. You had Florida right now has rapidly opened up restaurants and many other things. And a lot of us are expecting super spreading situations in Florida. Um, we've seen, you know, places that kind of ignored uh, this up and down the Midwest saying, oh, it's not here. Um, now having very high rates of uh, cases. Uh, we've had 31 states that are going up and not down, uh, which is a very worrisome situation going into the fall when we're going to move inside. It's going to be much easier to pass this virus along. Um, and a lot of us are seriously worried about the consequences. Hey, Zeke, I'm trying to do whether that was apples to apples. So when in May in the United States, um, we, we got a later start, right, uh, th than Europe. A and by May, they, they were already seeing uh, progress over in Europe. Did, did you adjust? I'm, not, I'm just not sure whether you adjusted for that, because we were right at the height close to it in, in, in May still, and, and they were on the downside in Europe. Is, did, did, yeah. did you standardize that in a way, or, or, or am I wrong on that? Because or, or, we were going to have a lot more, um, yeah. you know, a lot more deaths in, in May than they would because they, they, were, they got it a lot earlier there. And then I have a follow-up question, too, for you. That is a super sophisticated question, um, and you're 100% right. Uh, we started a week or two later than uh, European countries like Italy, France, 
Um, but if you make that adjustment, it makes a slight difference, not, not a time. huge difference. Yeah. Okay. So it's not it's not. Oh, our peak was in May and their peak was in, you know, the end of March, early April. In fact, our peak was earlier in April. Um, yeah. And by May 10th, by May 10th, we should have gotten our arms around it. And then also in our paper, we look at June 7th and subsequently. And even if you look at June 7th, uh, we have tens of thousands of more deaths than yeah. other countries like, again, the Netherlands, France, Spain, Italy. So we've done poorly. And by the way, our data collection goes through mid-September. So we've done poorly even with the August blip because of um, uh, the uh, spring va uh, summer vacations in many yeah. European countries where we know people like uh, Silvio Berlusconi in Italy partied and ignored uh, all the recommendations and got COVID. Uh, so yeah. we have done badly even after even if you include the fact that we got this uh, about a week or two later compared to other countries. That that was a very good uh, question. Typically, only uh, high-level statisticians or clinical researchers ask that kind of God, question. God, I'm, I'm I don't know whether I'm, We're gonna give feeling, you an MD. I'm feeling so good about myself all of a sudden. The problems we've had here, the number of cases, the number of deaths, the number of hospitalizations was not inevitable. Um, it was a result of bad public health uh, measures uh, being implemented or not implemented, as the case may be. Um, and you can see this repeatedly, states seeming seeming to learn nothing, like Florida, rushing to right. open up restaurants, bars, when we should be slowly, slowly reopening. Dr. Emanuel, very quickly, it, I guess we do yeah. have time for one more question. How, how much of an impact do you think Americans' healthiness is versus other countries? How, how do we rate just in terms of underlying comorbidities that might be there? Well, it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. For one thing, our population skews younger than most European countries. They have a much older population, more people over 65. Um, and we know that older people tend to die uh, from this disease, unfortunately. Um, we have more comorbidities in terms of diabetes, in terms of obesity, but they have more comorbidities in terms of lung problems because they have higher smoking rates in the United States. Net-net, hmm. um, it probably comes out in the wash, but um, we're going to have to do some more rigorous studies of the comorbidity situation and the age distribution of the population. But I don't think it's going to be tens of thousands of deaths. It might be uh, a few thousand, maybe even 10,000. But the overwhelming response, the fact that about half of our deaths are unnecessary, um, that's not going to come out because of small differences in comorbidities between our countries and their country. Zeke, thank you very much for your time. It's really great talking to you. Thank you. Very sophisticated okay. questions this morning. Next on Squawk Pod, Larry Fink, head of BlackRock, which manages more client money than anyone else, on how average investors are weathering this volatile 2020. We have a strong conviction that the average investor still is underinvested, and they're going to have to be putting more and more money to work over the coming months and maybe even years. I believe we still have more to go on the upside. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. BlackRock is the world's largest money manager, with greater than $7 trillion in assets under management. The firm reported quarterly numbers this morning, and the results were much better than Wall Street expected. Earnings per share were $9.22, handily beating analyst expectations and coming in over $2 higher than the same time last year. 2020 has been eventful for BlackRock. CEO Larry Fink started the year with a letter heard around the world. His annual letter to fellow executives focused on climate change, and it was the talk of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland in January. In the letter, Fink announced that BlackRock would be dropping investments in certain fossil fuel companies, and the firm would take a stronger position with companies it holds in funds when it comes to issues of sustainability and climate change. Then, of course, the whisper of a novel coronavirus we'd heard at that same forum in Switzerland became a full-blown global pandemic. And then stay-at-home orders, shuttered businesses, and layoffs became an economic crisis, which prompted significant efforts to shore up the U.S. economy. In May, the Federal Reserve began a massive emergency bond-buying program to keep borrowing costs cheap. And since the Fed's job is primarily to set big-picture monetary policy by purchasing Treasury debt, it enlisted BlackRock to manage three specific debt-buying efforts. As the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock has the expertise to do this. The firm could end up purchasing, on the Fed's behalf, $750 billion portfolio of debt. The stimulus and bond-buying program from the Fed are essentially part of a whatever-it-takes approach to support the American economic system. The last time we saw something like this? After the financial crisis in 2008, when the Fed turned to BlackRock to oversee $130 billion in distressed debt, originally from Bear Stearns and AIG. When BlackRock CEO Larry Fink speaks, Wall Street and Main Street ears perk up. In the last quarter, BlackRock, manager of enormous government portfolios, saw record participation from retail investors in the stock market. Here's Becky Quick. Hey, Larry, who who are your retail customers? I'm trying to get a little bit of an idea about how people are doing. Are, Are these very wealthy individuals who are putting more money to work because they have more money during all of this time? Are these, uh, you know, average people who happen to have more cash because of things that have come their way, being stimulus checks or other things? It's surprising to see this much uh, growth in your assets under management at a time when you know you're dealing with very high unemployment and people concerned about so many things, too. Well, I think I mentioned this at the end of the second quarter on the show. We are seeing a record amount of retail participation in the marketplace. Uh, you report a lot about Robinhood and the day traders, but across the board, uh, um, the the average investor is putting more and more money to work, which is a good outcome. I do believe that pandemic actually has created that that fear of the future, and a response is now is a higher savings rates in America, a higher investment rate uh, for the long term. So we're seeing across the board, not only in America, but in Asia and in Europe, we're seeing a record amount for us of inflows from across the board from retail investors, from from the um, open architecture platforms of the large wirehouses to the RIA channels uh, that are growing quite rapidly in the United States. And in Europe, I would have always said the Europeans have been less oriented towards equities over the last 20 years. And we're seeing uh, more equity investments also in Europe across the board. Uh, So um, 
And that reflects for us, uh, one of the most important statistics for us is we had $48 billion of active inflows, of which, very different than the industry, we had $10 billion of active inflows in our equity platform, too. So it was across the board. You know, Larry, we, we have seen the markets perform so well, all of the major averages con continuing to sit very near their 52-week highs. Um, the transport's at an all-time high once again. You're somebody who knows these markets well. You've followed them for decades and decades. What, what concerns you? What do you see coming? What, what, what are, what's your feeling right now? I would tell you, actually, I'm not that concerned. I think it's more the same. Uh, our central bank has identified that they are going to keep rates lower for longer. I believe we will have some form of fiscal stimulus, whether it occurs this month or in January. I believe the Europeans are refocusing on another fiscal stimulus, and the, their central bank is very aggressive, too. With interest rates as low as they are, we're seeing more and more investors focusing on where they put their money. How do they orient their whole portfolio to meet their long-term needs. And so um, we, we have a strong conviction that the average investor still is underinvested and they're going to have to be putting more and more money to work over the coming months and maybe even years. So I, I believe we still have more to go on the upside, um, even in, in front of probably rising infection rates uh, with COVID-19. Fortunately... They, Fortunately, with the rising infection rates, we are actually seeing less hospitalization, too. Yeah. And we're yeah. able to deal with it quite a bit more. I'm sorry, Joe, would you like to speak? Uh, yeah. Hey, do you remember the days when we had the luxury of hoping for higher rates for retirees and pensions? And there was a time when you said, wow, we really need to be doing this now. And um, we don't, I, I assume that you're, like Keynes, your opinion is, has evolved given the pandemic and what happened, and, and that that's a luxury we can't afford anymore to, to try and get some dry powder for the Fed, for future, for the, this is the future. This is the, the, <laughs> the, the black swan event. So I guess we don't need to save up for, for dry powder when it's already happening. Well, so you've given up, you've, have you given up on normalizing rates at this point? I would say over the long run, no, Joe, I have not. I, I believe at this moment of time, we need to get over this black swan, as you call it. We need, to, we, need to, uh, uh, we need the economy to find those jobs back for the 10 million people who are out of work. Uh, we, we are seeing a, we're seeing because of the tremendous effort by policymakers related to monetary policy. Monetary policy, which I've always talked about, um, uh, creates more income inequality because monetary policy lifts financial assets, and it is really mostly the wealthy people who own all the financial assets. Um, and that's why fiscal stimulus is so important. And this is why I think our, our you know, uh, Chairman Powell basically said we need fiscal stimulus, and I would agree with what he's saying. Um, and so I would say right now we do not need normalization of interest rates until we can say safely that the, the economy has stabilized, that job creation is strong, and that we have a, uh, an economy that is across the board, a, an economy for everybody. Um, but let's be clear, are, these deficits will matter sometime in the future. Uh, but it is not a problem for this moment, and I, and I do believe the aggressive nature of central bank behaviors is basically foretelling us that we should not worry about rising interest rates at this time. So let's focus on rebuilding our economy over the next 
year or so, and so we can have a more broad-based economic growth for everyone. Before we get back to that and, and to the economy, I, I did want to ask you uh, about ESG because you've been a pioneer, as we've reported uh, for many, many years uh, when you've written your annual letters this year, most recently on the issue of climate. Uh, and yet some news uh, just in the past couple of days, uh, five Senate Democrats calling uh, on BlackRock uh, to explain what they're calling. They're saying this is all, all rhetoric, Larry, uh, uh, rather than, uh, than truth, if you will, in terms of the company's voting record uh, when it comes to climate action. They say, quote, one aspect of BlackRock's voting record stands out. It's opposition to shareholder resolutions that would improve disclosure of election spending and lobbying, including through trade associations. They're specific about how that therefore relates to climate. Can you speak to that when you got that letter, what you thought? Great question, Andrew. <clears throat> I don't think any other firm has done more for climate uh, in 2020 than BlackRock. We had uh, over 1,200 engagements on ESG matters with, with, our, with, our, with our companies we invest in. Uh, 950 of them were on climate. The majority of engagement is not in a proxy. And, and fortunately, people look at what is done only in a small, small percent of all the business interactions, the, the corporate stewardship actions we have with clients. And so they're taking a small subset and are trying to conflate our position and our role. Andrew, as you know, I asked every company to report under SASB and TCFD. And since my letter over, <clears throat> there's been a 400% increase in companies reporting in, uh, 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 under SASB. And SASB has publicly said it's because of my CEO letter. And so we're doing more and more for public uh, transparency related to social issues, related to climate issues. And I do believe this is just the beginning. In addition, we have now raised this year in over $25 billion in sustainable ETFs. That's more than double we raised all of last year. And so between what we are seeing in this very large reallocation of capital, plus our corporate stewardship engagement, uh, no firm has that type of record. Yes, indeed, there are some companies that we voted with the companies uh, and uh, against some of the uh, maybe the, some of the social agendas. We are pushing our companies as much as we believe is possible. We're long-term investors. We're not trying to disrupt a company uh, to do something that would be very um, negative for their operations in one year period of time. But we are taking a, a intermediate to a long-term position with every company. And maybe to some people, we're not, we're, we're, we're tolerating too much. I don't agree with that, but everybody has an opinion. But I do believe our consistency in terms of moving more and more corporations towards greater transparency through SASB and TCFD, our voting record and our engagement will show that we are making that change. But we're not going to make a change in one year. We're, we're focusing on the results over 5, 10, 20 years of making sure that alongside an investor appetite that's moving into more sustainable strategies, we do believe more and more companies are moving that way too. And I, I will 
I am very confident our results will show that we are doing as much, if not more, than any other company moving towards that objective. But we are not going to be sacrificing a company that may have structural issues um, in any one year, but the pressure that we're going to be applying is going to be over a number of years so they can move forward uh, and, and still uh, build their company for the future. Hey, Larry, are, are you... Uh uh, we always ask you about, you know, if there's a Democratic administration, uh, you know, if it, if it were to be Biden. Have you had discussions about about Treasury Secretary or, or maybe more appropriately, how about Energy Secretary? I think that might be, uh, you probably take either. Maybe you can do both. Joe, that's a, thank you for that compliment. Um, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is not news. Uh, it's been reported elsewhere. I've t this past summer, I told my board and my management team, um, I'm staying at BlackRock. I have no intention of going to Washington. Um, I have much more work to do. Mr. Uh, Fink goes to Washington. That, that, that would be, uh, that's a best picture winner. I know, actually, I well, don't think it, I mean, it yeah. Joe, but I never asked you. Any thoughts for you to, you know, if, well, uh, if that, the Trump administration that wins? Would have been the last, that would have been the last. Oh, you mean in the next Trump administration? Uh, he, I, he, that's, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really considered that, Larry. We'll have okay, to, well, uh, I, think you, I think you should. We'll, we'll, we'll both know in, you know, I, 21 days, right? You don't want me in that. I'd still be doing fracking, Larry. I, <laughs> I'm not convinced we can end hurricanes okay. and fire. I'm not, I, I don't, right. I didn't, I'm not really convinced that we can change the entire right. global climate, but I think it's nice that you do as a, as a money manager that, that, uh, that you're hey, involved with hey, that. Hey, Larry, I, well, I mean, Larry lower, while we have you here. Lower the oceans. Lower them. <laughs> thank you. Right. Cool thank you, Joe. Hey, Joe. Andrew, what can L I do? Larry, Larry, yeah, exactly. Well, while we have you here, I wanted to ask you just about what else is happening in the markets. And, and one of the things that we seem to be talking about virtually every day uh, is a new SPAC. And what you what you make of SPACs, this idea that SPACs are democratizing uh, potentially the IPO process on one end. Other people think it's a it's a terrible compensation scheme uh, for the sponsors and everybody else is going to get burnt when this is all over. Where, where do you land and how do you think about it? I haven't spent much time on SPACs. Um, it's not something that that I focus on at all. Um, generally, when things are as um, as red hot uh, as a product. Uh, generally, we will have uh, unfortunate accidents. Uh, but I do believe some of the SPACs are going to transform themselves into very fine companies. In many cases, you're, I think SPACs in, uh, could replace uh, many private equity uh, platforms because they could, they could be another avenue for organizations or subsidiaries of organizations to be spun out. So if SPACs continue to, to grow in importance, I do believe it's going to be pressure on some private equity because you're going to see more money moving into these type of organizations. And I think this is why so many entrepreneurs are getting into it. But let's be clear, when you have a blank check, um, the investors have to vote on the propriety of any investment. And if they don't believe the propriety of the investment is, is correct, they could vote it down. But when I just see right. the consistency and the speed in which these things are being developed by, by every who's who in the world, um, we're, we're going to have some accidents. I don't know who or what. But overall, um, I do believe these can present really good ideas and a good way of unlocking, you know, maybe subsidiaries and companies 
um, and different organizations. Right. So let's be clear, there are going to be some really good outcomes with some depending on what they actually acquire. And, and some of them, uh, because they only have a short period of time to find the acquired organization, they may rush into it in, a, in an right. inappropriate way. Hopefully the shareholders at the right. time when they vote on it will vote against that and this back goes right. away. Hey, Larry, before you go, one other question, which is, are you advising any of your clients right now to think about tax strategies potentially ahead of a potential win uh, for Biden? I ask because there's a view that next year uh, taxes would go up, capital gains rates could go up, and there could be tax strategies in terms of people trying to sell this year in advance of that, potentially, by the way, rebuying some of the same stocks, or at least not, you can't buy the same stock, but other, other stocks uh, immediately afterwards. What's your sense of that? Well, I think because now so many large, uh, large companies have huge gains, I think uh, unquestionably in the, uh, you know, the latter part of the fourth quarter, you're going to see people taking profits. That, that is not a strategy that happens any, you know, uh, only during elections and maybe changings of administration. That happens every year when you have big gains, especially if they're capital gains, people are going to take the profits and maybe repurchase those items um, in January. We historically saw huge activity in December in ETFs play, uh, with people uh, selling stocks, buying ETFs, uh, and then reselling them back in January. So there's many strategies that you see. But, I, I, you know, depending on who wins, I, do, I believe it's going to be very hard until the economy is really resettled and upward lifting that we ha can have a real dialogue on how we uh, manage our deficits. And so um, I'm not as worrisome about where we're going to be uh, next year related to tax strategies. But let's be clear, from where we were in March, my gosh, it is the, the, the markets feel great. The participation in the markets are large. And I do believe there's a lot of foundational reasons for that, even in front of the pandemic. But we're seeing much improvements in the global economies. Uh, across the board. In, in our economy, we're packed about 80% of where we were, and the trends are looking good. I think J.P. Morgan's announcements today related right. to the reserve is a really great indication of the underlying strength that is beginning to occur in our economy. Fair enough. Uh, Larry Fink, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you and get your perspective and insights on all of it. We appreciate it. Hope to do it again with you great. very, very soon. Thanks, Hopefully guys. in person sooner than I later. would love that. Thank you. I have my tie on now. So. Hopefully we happen. We would love that too. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. That's Squawk Pod for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Bill Gates. 
the Microsoft co-founder and one of the world's richest men, has focused his post-corporate life on public health. We'll discuss the latest on hopes for COVID therapeutics, possible vaccines, and how to build up business after a pandemic. Don't miss it. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.